Yes, yes, all coming to you guys can take a seat. It is good to be here with you guys. Yo, let's give a hand for the worship team, seven person crew. Man, they killed it. That's awesome. Man, it is good to be back here with you guys again. I miss fall retreat. Like, I really want to go back. Um, I need some more prison mic in my life, so. But stress doesn't exist back in fall retreat, so I want to be back, like, right now. Anyways, it's good to be here with you guys. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Tony. I have the opportunity to lead this college ministry, and I'm really, really excited about what God has to say to us tonight in Acts chapter 9. But even before I begin, I just want to say, if you're new here to Salt Company, it's such a joy to have you with us. Uh, I remember when I kind of stepped back into church after kind of a long hiatus, and I just want to say, it takes a lot of faith to step back into an environment like this. And so I just want to say thanks for being a part of our family. But tonight, we will be looking at Acts chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love if you would take it out. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. They're really, really cheap, and we've got a ton of them. So they have them in there. Acts chapter 9 is about 80% of the way through your Bible. In Acts chapter 9 tonight, we're going to see a story of a man named Saul who encountered Jesus and everything changed for him. A story of a man named Saul who encountered Jesus and everything changed for him. Let me pray as we jump into this message. Yeah, Jesus, I, I don't know what everyone's coming into this room with tonight, but I do know that you love everyone in this room. And that's such a sweet gift to know. And Lord, I want to be changed by tonight's text. I don't want to leave this place the same. I want people to leave this place different. And Lord, I pray that there would be kind of a silencing of any distractions coming in tonight. Whatever schools on people's minds, whatever works on people's minds, whatever kind of pain or struggle is on people's minds, Jesus, that you would be silencing those things and they would be able to focus in on what you have to say to us through Acts chapter 9. That the story of Saul transforming by the goodness of your gospel would be the story of someone here tonight. That someone would meet you for the first time and see that you are Lord and that you are beautiful, Lord. I want that for people in this room. I want that for me. I pray that as we look through this text that I grow more and more in love with your word and grow more and more in love with you. I pray that the same thing for every student in this room. Father, thanks that we get to do this. Thanks that we get to have this habit of gathering together on Thursday nights. This is a joy and this is a gift. Father, we pray that you would move in this place. We pray that your spirit would be heavy, that your presence would be felt. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I'm kind of a skeptic. Here's why that matters. It's because it affects my daily reality because I ask the question why to just about everything in life, okay? So I've got a couple whys for you guys today. Uh, the first one is um, why are babies... Just let that one sit. That like hit this crowd for some reason, just right here, but no one else. Like, you guys like have kids or something? What's going on? Anyways, uh, it's like really personal. Uh, I thought about this the other day. I saw a baby. I was like, that baby's really cute. Why are babies like categorically cuter than adults? Have you guys thought about that? It's a bit of a bummer. You age and you get way less cute. Like actually, this is a real thing. Bummer, I'll say it, and then you get into the adult years and you're like, whatever. Um, the main reason why I want to do that one is my wife's here tonight, and she really wanted me to show you guys a picture of Exhibit A. So I think we've got a picture. Yeah, so. It's her favorite picture in the entire world. She's so loved by that. So it was totally worth it. Exhibit A, I've gotten way less cute. Second thing that I've been wondering about recently is uh, 
Why have I been tired for like two years? Have you guys asked yourself that recently? Like actually, like aren't you, haven't you been so tired for so long? You're like, really, when do I get rejuvenated? Like when's the last time you woke up and you're like ready for your day? I feel like genuine death. I'm like, I don't even know if I can like get a cup of water right now. I'm like, I am that much in pain, okay? Why do human beings hit adulthood and then you're just tired until you die? Like what kind of life is that? Someone should have designed that different. Anyways, um, that's a bit of a bummer. It's my, more of a little personal one. I've been asking God this recently. Why did he cap me at five foot seven? That's a big thing. Guys, I used to think I was 5'8". And then I met my wife, and she's like, I'm 5'8". And I'm like, that can't be true, because you're taller than me. And then she's like, you're 5'7". And I was like, I just got demoted right there when I met my wife. It was horrible. I was so disappointed by that. Guys, it genuinely prohibits my lifestyle. Sometimes I can't reach the top cupboard of our kitchen, so I have to like drag a stool. You know, she's like shaking. She's like, this is really painful. Yeah, you got to grab a stool and climb up on it and risk your life for whatever's on that top cupboard. I don't want to do that. Our stools suck. I've been thinking about that recently. I was like, God, you could have just added six inches and we'd all be fine. But no, now I'm mad at you. <laughs> Anyways, um, so I'm a skeptic. Okay, through and through. I ask questions why all the time. Like literally plagues my life. Every time I drive, I'm like, why is that person doing that? And it sucks, okay? You don't want to be me. But the benefit is I also ask kind of deeper questions, okay? So here's a couple why questions. Um, those were the funny why questions. I have one why question that I've been asking my entire life. And I actually think it's the most important question I've ever asked. And I think it will be the most important question you ever ask for the rest of your life. And the question is, why Jesus? Why Jesus? And I've thought about this my whole life, because if you really think about it, there are a lot of different options out there, right? You got Jesus, you got Muhammad, you got Buddha, you got Hinduism, you got atheistic worldviews and philosophies. Like, you can really pick. There are quite a bit. So why Jesus? Why give your life to a carpenter who died 2,000 years ago? Growing up, I, um, I really hated the church, which I know I'm not supposed to say that, but I am. I hated the church. I went to this Korean church, and the reason why I hated it is partly because I hated the people there. And uh, these two old ladies would squeeze my cheeks at like 12 years old, which if you're like, wow, like what would that feel like? It hurts. Like it genuinely hurts. I would like get teary-eyed. I was like, why are you doing this every time I go to church? You're making me not want to be here. So that was one thing, I hated the people. Second thing is, um, I thought religion was fake. I actually grew up my entire life being like, this is a bunch of BS, actually. And so at 13 years old, I sat both my parents down and I told them that I did not believe that Jesus was my savior and that God was real. And I was done with church. Because I didn't get, like, why are people talking about stories from a book written by 66 authors over thousands of years? Like, I, it has nothing to do with my life. Like, David and Goliath, I have no idea why that would apply to anything. I thought it was irrelevant. I thought that religion was a man-made construct to oppress people. And so at the age of 13, I walked away from the church. And I think for some of you here tonight, you're asking a form of the question, why Jesus? And it might not be the full thing. You might not even consciously be thinking about it, like, why Jesus? But, but maybe you're here and you're like, man, I like, haven't really thought about why I'm a Christian. Like, I haven't really thought about why this path. Like, I've kind of grown up in this. I kind of like what this is, but I don't even know really why I'm here. And I think my hope for you tonight is that you'd be able to process some of those questions here at Salt Company in connection groups, but also that you would get an answer tonight where you would know why Jesus why Jesus? That's my hope for us tonight, is that we would have answers 
and that as you encounter Jesus in a very real way, that he wouldn't be some carpenter from 2,000 years ago, but he would be your present Lord and Savior and that everything would change in your life. Why Jesus? So guys, I'm a skeptic. You might be a skeptic. But in Acts chapter 9, we meet a true skeptic. So we're going to look at the story of Saul, the most skeptical man in the entire Bible. Look with me to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, so I just want to introduce our main character here, okay? This is Saul, Saul the skeptic, but he wasn't just like this like apathetic skeptic. You know how you meet people and they're like, yeah, I don't really have like religious perspectives. I don't really like associate with anything. Like you can kind of believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe. Saul was not that. He was actually the opposite of that. He was a skeptic that hated the things of Jesus so much that his entire life's aim was to eradicate the name of Jesus from the planet. So here's what he did. He would go from house to house to house in Jerusalem. I know we've kind of talked about this over the series. If you've been here, we've been doing this series called The Power of God, The Movement of God Through the Book of Acts. And he would go from house to house to house, and he would knock on your door, and he said, is there any Christians here, people following the way? And if there were, he would bind you legally, like he was allowed to arrest you, drag you in front of the religious people. They would try you, torture you for sure, and maybe even kill you. That was his day job. Saul was a murderer of Christians. But not only did that happen in Jerusalem, but you know how we've been talking about how the movement of God started in Jerusalem, but it's been kind of spreading out? Saul saw that. And not only was the church in Jerusalem, but it began to spread out to other cities around Jerusalem. And so Saul goes to the Jerusalem people, and he's like, hey, I need a letter so that I can go to all these different cities so I can drag Christians from their homes, try, torture, and kill them from all these other places. And so he goes to Damascus, which is another city by Jerusalem. But what I want to show you here is that Saul wasn't this like low-key skeptic. He wasn't really a seeker of Jesus. He knew who Jesus was, and he wanted to kill everyone who was in association with him. But what strikes me about this guy, which is Saul, is that he's simultaneously better and worse than you. Here's what I mean by that. He's a Pharisee, which means it was his job to be like really, really religious. They would memorize the first five books of the Bible. Most of us in here can't even list those off in order. Real talk. Those are the books of the Bible that you start a Bible reading plan, you're done by like February and you're like, I quit. Those are the books of the Bible. Had them memorized word for word. So here's how Saul would interact with some of us. Like if we were like, okay, Saul, I'm going to be more religious than you. Here's how that would go down. Bible reading, he wins. Generosity contest, he wins. Who goes to church more often? Literally had never missed a synagogue or temple likely in his entire life. No like sniffles, I'm not going to church. No like I've got a lot of stuff going on this week, I'm not going to Saul Company. Like literally would never miss. Who was some more sold out for the mission he believes in? He wins. This is who Saul was. And in almost every way we measure how good of a Christian you are, Saul would win. So he was simultaneously better than you, but he was also worse than you because he was a murderer of people. So hurting people, he wins. Praying on the powerless, he wins. Manipulation and distortion, he wins. Killing Christians, he wins. So simultaneously, 
Saul was better than us in every religious way, but worse than us in every human way. He was near to religion, but far from God. This is our main character, Saul, which was a real person, by the way. But then he encounters Jesus. Look with me to verse 3. If you got your Bibles with you. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Okay, so this is Saul, right? The one who literally kills Christians. The one that you would assume would be the furthest possible human being that Jesus would want to encounter. The one who is least likely to be converted to the cause of Christ. But this is what Jesus does. He intercepts Saul on his path to Damascus. Now, here's why that matters, actually, is that not only was Saul on a path to Damascus, he was on a path to destruction. He wanted to go to Damascus to destroy the kingdom of God, but instead, Jesus intercepts his story and puts him on a new path called life. This is the story of Saul's salvation, his testimony. But what I love about this story is um, it's not a seeker-sensitive story. So what I mean by that is I first came to faith in this like huge church, which I'm not against huge church, whatever, but it was a big like seeker sensitive church. And the language they would often use is like, man, if you want to follow Jesus, go get him. You know what I'm saying? Like if you want to follow Jesus, you should go and get Jesus. But what I love about Saul's story is there was no going and getting Jesus. He was far from God. I'm talking the farthest possible person from God. Like if he didn't love the things of Jesus at all, he wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for Saul. And here's what God does, is in a moment, Saul's eternity changes, not because of anything that Saul did, not because of a seeker-sensitive story, but because of the sovereign grace of God. And he enters into Saul's story, and everything changes for Saul. Look what happens in verse 4. In the weight of the grace of God, not something that Saul planned for, not something that Saul even sought out, but something that was laid onto him. He falls to the ground, and this is the conversation. God said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Yeah, I want you guys to notice, this is a little bit weird, right? Because Saul at that time wouldn't have thought that he was persecuting God. He would have thought that he was persecuting the Christian sect. But what God is trying to get at here is a little bit of a deeper reality, that, that Saul was persecuting the people of God, yes, but any time he sinned, any time he sinned, he was made an enemy of God. And I know Jordan talked about this about four weeks ago, but this is actually true. And I don't think we think about sin like this in our modern Christian culture because we don't like to use the word sin because it's like icky or whatever. Here's what's actually true about our sin is that when we sin, we are contributing to the cross of Christ. We're adding a nail into his hand as he lays there naked and bare on the cross. That is the weight of our sin. And the reason why God was Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is because every ounce of sin in Saul was persecuting God. The deep down stuff that Saul thought no one else knew, not just the stuff on the outside, not just the oppression of the people, but the deep down stuff that Saul thought no one else knew, God knew. And it made him an enemy of God. And for the first time, Saul understood that, that no matter how cleaned up he was on the outside, his religion could not hide his sinfulness. And here's my fear for some of us in this room, is you can look really religious for like a long time, and you can keep up the ruse. 
And we're really, really good at teaching people how to do that. Sometimes we call it discipleship, but I think we do it in a little bit of a poor way, where if you just do all the right things, then you're good. But unless you realize that the sin in you contributed to the cross of Christ, you will never understand the sovereign grace of God. And you will spend the rest of your life just being a really good religious and moral person to no avail because the Lord of the universe is not the Lord of your life. It's actually your ability to follow through on your religious commitments. And I would be amiss if tonight I didn't ask you to reconsider that proposition for the rest of your life. And then he asks, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I want you guys to see that if you're Saul in this moment, the next verse would have shook you to the core because the one that shoved him down to the ground with the lightning from heaven, with a voice from heaven, was the one that he had been persecuting the entire time. And this is how God answers. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I think suddenly Saul in that moment had this kind of transformation because he saw that he was sinful, that he was sinning against a holy God, that he was an enemy of a holy God. And he also saw that Jesus was Lord, that the question that he was asking, who are you, Lord, knew that whatever power was coming upon him was the Lord of the universe, and he thought it wasn't going to be Jesus, but it was. The same Jesus who pers he, he persecuted, the same Jesus who he told was a bunch of lies, an old carpenter that had no right to, to start a religion, a start a faith walk, that same Jesus is the one that Paul had been persecuting, and that same Jesus is the one who showed up in that moment. And Saul knew for the first time that Jesus was Lord. And Saul, come in. here's what I want us to gather from Saul's story. That the pattern of salvation we find in Acts chapter 9 is not just for Saul, but it's for every Christian. That Saul was on a path to destruction, and you too were once on a path to destruction. And God shows you on that path that your sin has been persecuting him. And it should rock your world. And if you're here and you kind of think about your sin a little bit flippantly, like I know I do that stuff, but it doesn't really wreck me, then he has not yet rocked your world. Then you are still walking down a path of destruction. And my hope for you tonight is that you would see that your sin carries weight. It carries weight. And when you see your sin and you see Jesus as Lord, that's when you understand the grace of God. But grace does not enter the picture until both those things are present. As I was writing this message, one of the things that really, really scared me is that false, unbiblical teaching has convinced people that if you were baptized as a child, you're saved. Or if you said it out loud as a child, right? I believe that Jesus is my God, then you're saved. Or if you grew up in a Christian home and your parents were Christians, then you're saved. Or if you went to a Christian school, then you're saved. Or if you did this or that or that. In other words, we have co-opted the religion of Saul. Same stuff, just different branding. Saul was in Judaism, a religion where if you did a couple things and you could work your way up to God in Christianity, we have made the action of salvation, not grace, but your actions. And my fear for you 
is that you would believe a false truth about your life. And like Saul, you would walk around believing that you are saved. Because here's what's true about Saul, is he wasn't questioning his salvation in this moment. As he was killing Christians, he wasn't questioning his salvation in this moment. No one else around him was questioning his salvation. But he wasn't in Christ. And the truth is, you weren't saved when you were baptized as a kid. You weren't saved when you said it out loud. You weren't saved when you read the Bible a couple times in a row. You were saved only by the sovereign grace of God. And that's it. There's nothing else. And that's what we preach at Saul Company every single Thursday. There's nothing else. We do not reinvent the wheel. There's nothing else that I can give you that would be even marginally helpful other than the sovereign grace of God to capture your life. And here's what happens when the sovereign grace of God falls upon you, you fall to the ground. And it wrecks your world. And this is a moment where he saves Saul, but he doesn't stop with Saul there. He sends him. Look with me to verses 20 through 22. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Guys, this is so awesome. Okay, so this is the story of Saul. Saul the skeptic the one who wanted to kill and eradicate the name of Jesus from this earth, turned Saul the servant, the greatest missionary of all time. Because when Saul encountered Jesus, everything changed. His ambitions, his desires, his calling, all of that changed. I want you guys to see the cost of following Jesus for Saul. Saul was rich. He was powerful. He was ascending in Judaism beyond many of his years. He was the one that was going to be the next high priest in Judaism. And he said, I'll give that all up to know Jesus Christ, my Lord. Because the cost of following Jesus is actually incredibly high. And the reality is, some of you guys have been fed this really lukewarm gospel that says that if you believe in Jesus, you'll make more money. Life will be better. You'll have prosperity in every single way. And here's what's true, is following Jesus is better. It is absolutely better than a life of sin, but it does not guarantee you the monetary compensation that some churches would like for you to believe. Because real salvation in Christ has a cost. And what Saul lost in that moment was power, prestige, and people. But what he gained was Jesus Christ, his Lord. And Saul was sent as a servant. And what I love about this story is that Saul was the last person to ever be saved by Jesus. The last person to ever be chosen by God. But when he was, he became Paul. And maybe you've heard his name thrown around a little bit before in Bible circles, but this is who Paul was. He was the greatest missionary of all time. He wrote half of your New Testament. Yeah, the guy who killed Christians wrote half of your New Testament. That's a lot of questions. If you got some from me after, we'd love to talk, okay? But that's crazy that God would save someone so far from him. That's the story of Saul. And here's what he did as the greatest missionary of all time. He left his home in Jerusalem. Because he was following one who left his home. Because here's what Jesus did for Saul. Is he left heaven to earth to get him. And so Saul knew that because that was the God that he served, he could go. 
He lived a life of suffering and proclaiming, but he lived a life of joy. I want to go back to the beginning of this talk and ask the question, why? Why Jesus? Like kind of we kid on this, right? But Saul was not a seeker. He wasn't someone, if you shared the gospel with him, he'd be like, oh, I'm in. He was absolutely out. So why Jesus for Saul? Because in that moment of salvation, Saul knew something that would radically transform every decision and every action and every thought he'd ever have for the rest of his life. And it was that Jesus Christ was Lord and the gospel was true. And honestly, guys, this is one of the greatest apologetics for the Christian faith. This is one of the reasons why Jesus for all of us is that because Saul was the last person that anyone would assume to follow Jesus. And yet he didn't just follow him in like an apathetic way. He followed him in an all-in way. His, his life was radically transformed. Theologians and historians that are atheists look back to Paul's salvation and they say, I don't, we don't know what happened to him. Something happened in him that so radically transformed his worldview that he started to make decisions that would have been genuinely insane for anyone else at that time. Offering up his body to be beaten for the sake of Christ. Being shipwrecked. Being flogged. Do you know what flogging is? You, you don't. That's fine. I had to learn this. This was a wild Google. Anyways, here's what flogging actually is. They used to have these whips that had glass and stone in them, and they have like nine tails, so sometimes they were called a nine-tail whip. And one of the things that they would do to punish the worst of the worst criminals, we're talking rapists, murderers, kidnappers, those people, is they would strap these people onto like a wooden beam with their back exposed, and they would whip them with this nine-tailed whip. And then as they tore out, chunks of flesh would come out. And they would call it 40 minus 1 because 40 whips was supposed to kill you, so they'd give you 39 instead. Saul's only crime, Paul's only crime in his life after this moment was to serve Jesus Christ as Lord, and he received that five times. How can you explain a man who was killing Christians but was willing to offer up his life for Christianity? How can you explain a man who hated Jesus but lived his life so radically from that point on that nothing else could explain that transformation? How can you explain a man who had everything transformed in his life in a moment? The only way that you can explain the salvation of Saul is by realizing that Jesus Christ is Lord and the gospel is true. The gospel is true. And what I want you to see tonight is that the story of Saul informs your story. Remember when I kind of talked about how Saul is simultaneously better than you and worse than you? Some of us in this room subconsciously believe that we're good enough for God's grace. Like, not consciously. Like, you probably wouldn't tell me that, right? Like, if we had a conversation, we got some coffee, you'd be like, no, 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 I believe in the grace of God. But what you're actually saying is, I'm good enough. I don't need to be dependent on Jesus, man. I got my life under control. I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going after college. I know the house I'm going to buy one day. I know the car I'm going to buy one day. I've got my life under control. And yeah, Jesus is a thing that I do on Sundays, but yeah, I like his grace. But it wouldn't be real to you. And here's what Saul would say to you, that the, your religion, your morality, the way that you perceive grace cannot buy your salvation. Because here's what religion is. Here's what moral performance is. It's pride. And God opposes the humble but gives grace 
opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But some of you are actually here, and you're kind of on the other side of that argument, right? So we kind of talked about some people believe they're too good for the grace of God. Some people believe they're too broken for the grace of God. And if I were to be really, really honest, I think this has actually really affected the way that I view Jesus for a lot of my life. I think in particular, um, we just grew up in just a hard situation with abusive home and poverty and all of this stuff. And I actually just couldn't imagine a God who could love me the way that the Bible said Jesus loved me. So underneath the intellectual ascent as a 13-year-old kid, what I didn't know laid a bed of insecurity. And it's actually that I just didn't believe that Jesus would want to die for someone like me. And so I punted on the whole idea of God. And here are some of the lies that I used to believe that I still fight with, honestly, every day of my life, is that maybe God could love me, but he sure doesn't like me. And wouldn't that inform the way that you live? Wouldn't that inform the way you look at God? Wouldn't that change the way you look at him? If you just believed that he loved you in theory, but didn't like you daily, wouldn't you not want to spend time with a God like that? Another lie would be that maybe God would want to save me, but he didn't want to know the real me. The stuff that you're really, really ashamed of. Like I'm talking about the stuff that keeps you up at night. Those nights where you just can't go to bed because all you can think about is that moment of your life that you would take back in a heartbeat. That stuff. The stuff that you won't ever tell anyone else about, which I hope you do in connection with, but you probably won't tell anyone else about. God wants to know that part of you, but you don't actually believe that. And that's actually tainted your walk with Jesus. And there's no intimacy when there's not all transparency. And so my hope for you is that you would actually fight that lie tonight. And the last lie is I think maybe God would seal me by his spirit, but he wouldn't celebrate my walk. And I think for most of my life, I've just been disappointed, honestly. I'm like, I know I'm a Christian, just feels like I suck at being a Christian. And I felt like God was almost like disappointed with me by my day-to-day realities when in actuality, he celebrates every win of your life. Every time you get out of bed and you read your Bible, God's like, yes, that's awesome. Every time you say no to just a little, like the littlest of sins, you know, God's like, yes, that's my daughter. And heaven roars when a sinner repents. Do you hear that? Thousands of angels roar. Because God's throwing a party up there because he's like, man, my kids are just taking little bitty steps forward and sometimes big steps back. But you can master the restart. And every time you take a step back and you take just a little bit step forward, God is proud of you. But most of us live in shame, not celebration. But here's what I think Jesus would say to both camps, the I'm good enough, I don't need God's grace camp, and then the I'm too bad for God's grace. I think he would say that he is Lord that he's Lord over your life. That for the two good camp, I think he would say, compare yourself to me real quick and you'll realize that you're not that good. That you can take a step off of your pedestal. That God could grant you humility and your life would be so much better. But I think for the I am too bad camp, Jesus would look at you in your deepest, most broken moments, and he would say, man, you're exactly who I came for. 
because your brokenness is not a disqualifier for God's sovereign grace. It's actually the only qualifier. All you bring to the table is, Jesus, I'm messed up. I need you. Like, actually, I need you. And the way you know true love is when in your brokenness, the person doesn't leave you in disgust, but they come towards you. And some of you in this room, my prayer for you is that after this sermon, you would learn to be open with God about the deepest, darkest stuff that you never thought you would ever share with him or ever share with anyone else. And that you would feel the warm embrace of Jesus. That's the great physician who came to heal the deepest wounds of your life. That's my hope for you. I think we need to learn that his lordship is large enough to handle both our pride and our brokenness and that he can transform your life. What I love about Jesus is he's the Lord to both bow to and to hug, like almost at the same time, like in in order, you know what I mean? Like bow to King Jesus. Yes, all hail King Jesus. And no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. Give him a big hug. You know what he did with his disciples most of the time? They like sat around and like ate food together, which is so chill. Like that's so chill. Like if I'm like, man, knowing what I know now, I kind of thought it'd be different, you know, but that's all he did. He just chilled out with his disciples. But he also brought heaven down to earth. So this is who Jesus is, both your king and your best friend. And he wants to know you like that. He wants lordship over your life. And it would be the best possible thing if you bowed and gave him a hug. The question all of us are invited to ask ourselves tonight is why Jesus? Why am I here tonight? Why, like Saul, should I give up all the things in my past to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? As I call the worship band back up, um, Man, when I was 16 years old, I I heard the gospel in English for the first time. And to be frank, I wasn't looking for Jesus. A cute girl invited me to church. I'll say it. I went, okay? That didn't work out. Anyways, me and Jesus did. So who's the loser now? Anyways, so. But I went to church. And, uh, And that night, I wasn't looking for God but God met me. And I still remember thinking simultaneously, this is too good to be true. And if this is true, this changes everything about me. And I didn't get the the gross religious God that I once thought he would be. I got the friend Jesus. And he just gave me a huge hug. And he's like, hey, man, all that stuff that you think disqualifies you from my grace, all that brokenness, all that trauma, all that abuse, that's exactly why you're qualified to be in my arms right now. And I began to feel the healing of the great physician, and it blew my mind because I was like, man, I've been missing this my whole life. So here's the question I want to ask you tonight is why Jesus? Because I feel like ever since I met Jesus, that's the only question I've been ever asking for you. And I feel like God has been preparing preparing me. Because why Jesus, right? Because aren't all religions the same? Don't all roads lead to the same place? Why believe in the exclusive claims of Jesus and the difficulties of discipleship to him? And guys, I'll be straight up. Ever since I got saved, I've been studying every type of world religion. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, what are the other ones? 
there are other ones. Judaism, every atheistic worldview, philosophy, holy book, path to life. And here's what I found, that every religion in the world is built fundamentally the same. It's all on you. What can you do to gain the pleasure of God? What can you do to gain the flavor of Allah? What can you do to reincarnate the way that you want to reincarnate? It's all on you. And I don't know about you. I don't even live up to my own expectations. How are you supposed to live up to the expectations of a holy God? You can't. And all you need tonight is to just have the humility to be like, man, I can't. And this is what separates Jesus from every other religion is that every other religion says, work your way up to God. Jesus is God working his way down to you. And the invitation that he has for you is the same invitation he had for me when I was 16. To believe that he is Lord over my life and that the gospel is true and you will have everlasting life and joy abundantly. So much better than all the crap that's out there. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and you're invited into that kingdom tonight. Here's my hope for you tonight is that you ask the question, why Jesus? And Jesus shows up for you tonight and you never have to ask that question again. Let me pray. Father, I love that following you is so beautiful. It's so beautiful, I can't help but smile thinking about that night that you got me. You encountered me even though I wasn't looking to encounter you. You picked me up out of my brokenness and my dirt and my sadness and my depression. And you brought me to life. And Jesus, I'm just thankful that you came when no one else was coming for someone as broken as me. You showed up in my life. And I never had to ask the question, why Jesus again for myself? But I want to ask that tonight for everyone in this room. And my prayer is, Jesus, that you would do something here that's so supernatural, that's so beautiful, that's so heavy, that someone tonight would have the same response as Saul. And they would fall to the ground and realize that Jesus Christ is Lord and the gospel is true and it changes everything about them. And that the question why Jesus would be answered tonight in the cross. Father, do it tonight, Lord. We believe you can. We believe you will. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.